Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, the Women's Football World Cup. Duggan with the corner, and arriving brilliantly with the finish. England get a third goal, it's Alex Greenwood. What a corner that was. They are the Golden Girls, the champions of the world, the United States, and the World Cup for Japan. They have rewritten the history books in Germany. The biggest women's sporting event in the world is coming to New Zealand. 32 teams playing 64 matches over 31 days in nine cities, 10 stadiums and two countries. And just in New Zealand, we would expect around 30,000 international fans. But do sports-mad Kiwis really understand just how big this is? For a rugby-mad country, it's really hard for people to, to grasp the import and the size of this particular tournament. The only two events that are bigger from a global audience perspective are the Olympics and the Men's World Cup. And with women's sport once again front and centre, how do we make the most of this opportunity to boost participation? We often talk about wanting to encourage women and girls or people to fall in love with football and to stay in love with football. But how can football show that they love our women and girls back as well. Let's begin by getting the lowdown on the tournament from RNZ Sports journalist Barry Guy. You wouldn't say that it would be uh, the same as the Men's World Cup in size and popularity and coverage and those sorts of things, but it's definitely getting there. We expect a global broadcast audience of 2 billion. And to put that into perspective, 1.1 billion people viewed the Women's World Cup in France in 2019. In that same year, 480 million watched the men's 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan. The USA um, are the defending champions. Canada are the Olympic champions. And so there's a lot of quality uh, players and teams that are coming to Australia and New Zealand. How big are they worldwide? Well, the US is sort of, how would you describe it, that's sort of the glamour team. We will be four-time champions and keep winning until we not only become the best female soccer team, but the best soccer team in the world. They're the number one ranked side, and really as far as the women's game is concerned, the US, that's where it's at. Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, Mallory Swanson, uh, some of the stars there. The best FIFA women's player of the year, officially, is uh, Megan Rapino. Congratulations. I suppose it's, it's like if we're going to the Men's World Cup and you got to see Messi or Ronaldo or Mbappe or, or someone like that. It's, it's similar for... The women's game and the Americans are the ones that stand out. Australia have Sam Kerr. She plays for Chelsea and one of the leading players in the competition in England. Oh, Kerr in space. This could be it. Kerr finishes again. England have been on a run of doing very well the last couple of uh, years. The 2023 winners of the FIFA listener. Although they lost to Australia just recently. They have Leah Williamson, Beth Mead, Chloe Kelly, some of their stars. And Brazil have 37-year-old Marta, who could be playing in her sixth World Cup if she gets selected to come here. Absolutely breathtaking, Marta. It's one of the great goals of the World Cup. 
she's a bit of a, a legend in the game also. So, plenty of star players from around the world, but what about the chances of our own football ferns? They've uh, gone 10 uh, games without a win. The football ferns crashed to a 3-0 loss to Nigeria. The team has sort of uh, changed uh, in 2019 at the last World Cup. They had quite an experienced side. Uh, they did quite well. They didn't get out of their group at that World Cup, but uh, you know they lost sort of 1-0. Uh, they scored a couple of goals. The last couple of years, the football ferns, a lot of new players have been playing. They've struggled to get all of their top players playing friendlies or, or tournaments um, when needed. So the depth has been, you know, there's, it's been stretched. And so they haven't done particularly well in recent times and they've struggled to score goals as well. Former football fern Maya Jackman believes this year's World Cup may have come too soon for the current New Zealand side. It's a team that needs to sort of rebuild, re-establish, find who they are and find those next leaders now to step up. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of development that will go on heading into the next World Cup campaign. So it's too soon for this group of players, I'd imagine. I don't think, however, that is going to take the shine off uh, the World Cup for New Zealanders. Um, they'll be hoping that they do well. But I think the fans and those watching here are quite realistic of the standing of football around the world and that they're on another level. And they're all been preparing for this for four years probably. And I think the New Zealand fans will appreciate seeing top quality football by some of the top sides. Greatness feeds greatness. It begins with one, but before long, it catches on. Captivating this generation and inspiring the next. Do you think that we're prepared for this? Do you think we, as you know, the average New Zealander on the street, would care and know enough about it to be interested? Well, I think we, as New Zealanders, we're a bit slow on the uptake on some things. If, you know, the, the sports fan is going to know about a lot of these things, but maybe not the Women's World Cup. And as I say, there's been plenty of sales of tickets already for those that are involved in the game, I would say. And the interest from those, how do you describe them, that uh, sort of jump on board once things are going, that may happen a little bit closer uh, to the time. Over a billion people watched the last tournament four years ago on television around the world, so I expect that to be close to 2 billion people this time. I have noticed too around a lot of the the stadia that are uh, and training grounds like here in Wellington, Newtown Park, uh, and another couple of um, parks here, they're being upgraded. FIFA is paying for all of the grounds to be a, a certain standard and all the facilities at these grounds to be suitable for these teams. So there are lights being put in at some of these training grounds and all of the facilities and the stands are all being upgraded as well. And these are just the training grounds. Let's go to one of the training grounds that's getting a facelift. Birkenhead United AFC on Auckland's North Shore will be hosting the Italian team during the tournament. Its president, David Williams, is giving me a tour and the most notable upgrade is going to be the new changing rooms. So these have been in use since, since the 80s, 90s, yeah. So literally you had the home, the visitors, 
and then you've got the toilets down there. Uh, yeah, and another, there's a double changing room there with, with com- com- communal showers in it. So that was all we had. So what we've done with the new facilities is we've doubled the number of changing rooms. So we've got four changing rooms plus an official's room, accessible toilet, a medical room, and the 17 uh, individual showers. And, and there are also obviously individual toilets in there as well. Let's talk about the cost of the project. How much is it costing you? It's a $2.6 million project. We, we applied for a whole lot of funding. So we've had funding uh, from Auckland Unlimited. Uh, which is basically the FIFA, FIFA funding and uh, through MB, which is uh, recognising and supporting our move to being gender neutral and, and supporting women's sport. Uh, we've also had funding through the Auckland Council uh, facility grant and then we've had funding from a, a range of other funding partners. Initially, David says the club was scoped out as a potential media centre, but then conversations started about being a training spot for one of the teams. The Italians were one of those teams that paid a visit. They were very, um, really keen. They really liked the space. Probably didn't hurt that I had, um, we've got about four or five Italian members of our, of our football club. And a couple of them are coaches, so I made sure one of them was here. Um, so they were they were properly properly uh, met and hosted in their own language, which doesn't hurt. And uh, and then they were keen to come here, but FIFA has a process for, of grading those choices. But in the end, uh, luckily I guess for us and 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 for Italy because that's what they wanted, they chose us, and that's how we got them. David says most people probably underestimate the tournament's significance. For a rugby-mad country, it's really hard for people to, to grasp the import and the size of this particular tournament. It's massive. It's the, it's the Women's World Cup is the biggest female sporting event in the world, and it's the third biggest sporting event in the world. The only two events that are bigger from a global audience perspective are the Olympics and the Men's World Cup. So it's, you know, rugby doesn't even come close to the, to the audience numbers that, that it gets created for football. Well, tell me about women's football here at Birkenhead Club. It's a work in progress when we have actually an increased number of women uh, registered to play the game now, especially in, in the youth grades. It's really exploded. Um, we've been one of those clubs that have tended in the past to be a feeder club, so women have, have, come, through or have come through the game here and then when they've of uh, athletic ability to, to want to be to move on, they've tended to move to other clubs because other clubs have got a, a, a stronger female football pathway. But recently, about f- three, four years ago, we, we set up a, sw- a female football committee that is in charge with, uh, with driving that pathway. And uh, so that's been instrumental in us getting to the position where now we're, we've got very tangible ways of teams to, of, of, for women to come up through the grades we we also provide for girls that want to play in girls only teams that that opportunity and then for the girls that want to maybe test themselves against the boys and play in a more uh, possibly a, a more robust league when they're when they're juniors so under the age of 12 they can play in a boys team if they want to we've got a number of social women's teams i think we've got three social women's teams but then our, our top competitive women's team currently plays in the conference which is two levels below the premier league so hopefully they'll they'll um, play be successful this year and get promoted and then they'll be one level behind and and um, and we see that as ultimately that's our journey is to get into the premier premier division with the women. What do you anticipate the women's World Cup will do for women's football in North Shore? Oh, I think it's going to be transformational. 
I think one of the things we've raised um, at the beginning of the year, in fact at the end of last year, was was talking with our federations around how they supported us with what we identify as a very likely outcome that with the World Women's World Cup here and actually happening and then post it, there'll be a whole lot of, of girls and women who are, who are introduced to the sport, want to engage with the sport, and then how do we do that? How do we uh, f- make sure that we can, we can provide a, a real opportunity for people to come and try it out and, and see whether they like it or not, as a, not just as a, as a physical activity but also as something that, that will support them socially? I wanted to play when I was around 9 or 10 and um, I went to trials in the late 80s, early 90s and I showed up and it was just a field full of boys and it was a trial. Um, I'd never played before and they said just jump in and have a go and I was late because I was late and jumped on the field and all I remember is getting a ball straight in the face. <laughs> so, so that put my football career on hold for a little bit. That's Alita Shanks. That first experience didn't put her off football for life. She plays and has worked for football organisations all around the world. She's working in Waikato and Bay of Plenty this World Cup to try and get more girls and women into the game. She's also done a PhD on gender diversity and inclusion in community football and here's something surprising she found during her research. So women were banned from playing football from 1921 to 1971. In New Zealand? Yeah. Really? Why? It started in England, the English FA. Um, So women's football was really popular uh, both in England but also here in Aotearoa. I'm not sure if it was a little bit of jealousy uh, because the games were getting huge crowds, bigger than the men's teams. Um, But there was also a lot of um, social and cultural um, things going on with where women should be and if it was too dangerous for our fragile bodies to be playing football. Um, and a decision was made to ban women from being able to book pitches to play football on. Internationally? But internationally. So the English FA made the ruling and then it arrived here very quickly um, and so it was just adopted because there was a lot of contention already around who was going to schedule women's games and and what women should wear and how long the games should be. And so this was just really easy. We think that women still kept playing football, but they also, because of this official ban, they've disappeared from the history books as well. So there's like little snippets in the newspaper from the 20s through to the 70s, which kind of pop up like a a charity match. Um, So women must have been playing, but there's just not much record of them. And then that was lifted in the 70s when there was this probably the second wave feminism sort of coming through and women just wanted to play football. And so they just started playing. And so then that really just through momentum, the ban was lifted <laughs> officially in 73. I think that played a really big part in some of the challenges we face today. I think we're still catching up. So just in terms of resources and if women had been playing football all those years, I think would be you know, in a much different space now. You also found that there was uh, quite a, like a third of women got discriminated against in community organisations. Once I'd worked out what had happened in the past, I wanted to know what was happening in the present. And so I surveyed the staff and board members of um, their six uh, regional federations and also the club committees of one region uh, through in Central. And, yeah, 36% of women... Um, had said that they've faced discrimination um, within their current organisation. And women only make up a third of staff as well. 
So there's not many women and those that are there are, are not having a great experience. Well, what kind of discrimination were they facing? What were the, some of these experiences? Uh, some of it was really blatant. So one woman shared that she had um, been told that she wasn't receiving pay parity with her predecessor, who was a man, and that she was getting paid less, that they felt that she had soft skills and they weren't valued as much. They've not been treated the same on coaching courses, which is a big part of professional development for most football staff. People assuming that she was the assistant coach, not the head coach. That sexist banter, um, one woman commented there's one person in particular in the office who um, always makes really sexist remarks. The fact that they're making the remarks is awful, but they're also not being called out, so it's not addressed. And so that minimises, I guess, her experience um, and how she feels. Yeah, what are we lacking in? I think what we're lacking is the that sort of the equity in the workplace. Um, so because of that ban, there was a there's still a feeling amongst some people that um, that perhaps women um, don't naturally belong in football. And that sense of belonging was another aspect I um, talked about in the survey. So even though uh, 36% of women felt discriminated against, um, 76% still felt like they belonged, which was quite high. Not as high as men, so 96% of men felt like they belonged. (laughs) So definitely a male-dominated space. But when I asked women what gave them a feeling of that sense of belonging, most of it was around related to other people, so being respected, open communication, praise for work that they've done. And that sort of that sense of belonging relies quite heavily on other people's perception. And so it's not doesn't feel very safe. Whereas uh, for for a true sense of belonging we need to look at the environment. Um, so seventy percent of our behaviour is affected by our environment. And so if we're in an environment where uh, bullying is allowed to to happen then that's going to really impact on my sense of belonging but also our sense our sense of self-acceptance so can I be myself um, when I show up to work and whether it's in a football um, organization or anywhere and if I can be myself and I'm in a safe environment then that's an equitable and you know that strong sense of belonging and at the moment I don't feel like that we're quite there now we're getting the FIFA World Cup coming here. Yes. So what opportunities do you think that will give us to advance on women's inclusion? Yeah, I think that the Women's World Cup is a huge opportunity just to um, for momentum um, and to just raise some of these issues. And I think a really good example is the with the um, Rugby World Cup with the Black Ferns and the just the spotlight that was shone on the Black Ferns and they had an amazing tournament. But when we saw recently that the new coaching team been announced, three men and the assistant coaches, um, but the comments on social media were like, where, where are the wahini? Like, where are our women coaches? No one's disputing the quality of the coaches, but questions have been raised about why there aren't more quality female candidates. Prior to that World Cup, there weren't people talking about it, and there was a lot more, um, you know, best person for the job, and um, so it was really dismissive. So people are now talking about it and really conscious and aware of those challenges. So I feel like we can do that for football as well. We've got some really exciting programs um, coming through with the Legacy program from New Zealand Football, and which really focuses on um, more opportunities for women and girls to participate. But I think I'd, I'd really like to see 
some more a more focus on the organisation. So what, what can our clubs do and what can our organisations do? We often talk about wanting to encourage women and girls or people to fall in love with football and to stay in love with football, but how can football show that they love our women and girls back as well? Her leader hopes she'll help with some of that in her new job in Waikato in Bay of Plenty. So we have some on-the-ground activities. So we have a Fantails program and a Kicking It program. So Fantails is for our younger girls and Kicking It is for our teenagers. They're run by clubs and it's to try and encourage girls to, to give football a go. And we're, we're running coaching courses and referee courses that are, I'm going to be for just women um, and girls for us in the Waikato Bay of Plenty region, we're going to be working with our clubs, um, so sending a survey out soon um, and having some more one-on-one meetings to find out what clubs want from the World Cup. So what can we do to support them to, to help um, make sure there's a lasting legacy for them um, to keep this momentum going for football for their club? What kind of would you most like to see out of this World Cup in terms of diversity and inclusion and bringing women into the game? I think it's just a really good opportunity to for change. Um, so a, f- a friend of mine described it once as, um, we talk about change, and especially in women's sport, we have the revolutionaries and the evolutionaries. So the evolutionaries like to make tweaks and small steps as we make change, and the, the revolutionaries not quite burn it all down, but, but make sort of really big changes. And I feel like we're, we've been trying to make the small changes and it hasn't really had the impact that we need. There's still, um, with that, the high level of discrimination in the organisations, uh, women make up only 20% of our players um, on average. So we need some big, bold moves to really to get things moving so they're more equitable. And so I feel like the, the Women's World Cup is a really good opportunity to do that. And so that would be my, my hope um, for this World Cup and for the legacy, that it's a, it's a big change, that we can use this momentum for that. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Rangi Poek and produced by Sarah Robson. Thanks to Barry Guy, David Williams and Alita Shanks. Ma Tewa. Te